This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c In the Helping Babies Sleep Method, we talk about sleeping through the night as 11 to 12 hours with no feeds. You know, when kids sleep through the night really does vary. Okay, so I'm gonna give generalizations here. So with my exclusively breastfed kiddos, it could be eight or nine months of age to sleep 11 hours without eating at all. I have for sure had four month olds do it and five month olds do it, but I would say on average, it's around eight to nine months. If you have formula that's completely different and if you're bottle feeding, that's often different because you have so much more knowledge about how much they're consuming during the daytime, which can help you shift those calories more easily into the daytime. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Peds Doc Talk podcast. I continue to be blown away with your reviews and ratings and how you keep coming back for more important information on mindfulness and parenting, education and parenting, and sleep behavior and all of it. And it means so much for me that you're joining me today. Today's guest is actually a returning guest. Her name is Dr. Sarah Mitchell. She is the creator of the Helping Baby Sleep Method. And she was actually on my podcast, episode 133, where we talked about if sleep training is really needed for babies and toddlers. And today we're talking about the top misconceptions on infant and toddler sleep and training and sleep teaching. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Sarah. I am so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I love talking about all things sleep related to infants and babies and toddlers and just letting people know what's possible for them. Me too. And if you have not listened to episode 133, like I mentioned, Dr. Sarah also has a passion for mindful parenting where she really wants to help people get to the core of who they are, who they want to be as parents, expressing their emotions, being okay with all of their feelings. And it's so important to make our parenting goals happen. So I'm glad to be able to have her on again. If you have not listened to that episode, you have to do it, even if your baby is not in that infancy toddler years and you've outgrown it because she just shares some great parenting philosophies too. So this episode, I'm really excited about, but in case people have not listened to the other episode that you've been on, tell me more about yourself and why you got into doing what you do. Yeah, well, I'm a chiropractor by training, but really found my passion teaching parents how to get their little ones to sleep and parent confidently day and night as a sleep and parenting consultant, because this is about feeding, it's about sleep, and it's really about mindfulness as well. And, you know, we all get into this through some sort of personal journey. And mine was that here I was with all this medical background and I could not get my son to sleep at all. I just kept breastfeeding him back to sleep. He was 20 pounds by the time he was four months. And I was just feeling really tired and exhausted. And to be honest, felt a little bit dismissed by my support team trying to get more sleep that, you know, oh, just relax and enjoy your baby kind of mantras thrown at me. And so I went to work kind of researching, 
put my academic training to work, researching baby sleep and figuring out why this was happening to me and then figure out how to fix it. So I sleep trained him at four months. And then when my daughter came along two years later, I was like, not doing that again. Let's do this differently this time. And I worked on really gentle, what I call gentle newborn sleep shaping from about four weeks onwards for her. And I that helped me minimize the impact of that four month sleep regression and just helped her learn to independently self-soothe that much sooner. And it's just something I'm really passionate about. I just want people to know what's available to them. I think there's many, many different ways to raise your kiddos and you'll figure out what works for you. And I'm just here to provide you more information along your journey. Oh, again, I love that energy, that vibe. That is what we need in this parenting space with all things parenting, including sleep. And this episode, like I mentioned, we're going to go over the misconceptions on terminology, what people think, all of these things on infant and toddler sleep training. And so the first thing I wanted to ask you is you had mentioned to me before the recording why the term cry it out or CIO, which people might have heard of, makes you not so happy. Like, what is it about that terminology that you don't love? <laughs> it kind of makes me crazy because people have such wildly different definitions about mm-hmm. what it means. So anytime you're hearing people talk about sleep, I want you to be a critical thinker and ask questions. What's the definition? So if we go back to Dr. Ferber and cry it out, mm-hmm. cry it out is related to extinction. The idea of you close the door and you don't go back in. Yeah. Okay. I don't love that because for most families, I feel like it's just too much of a leap. It's too much of a change too quickly. And I always try to imagine the world from the little person's perspective. And if I'm used to being rocked and held and all of a sudden I'm in a crib by myself in a room by myself, like it's too much for me. Now, the thing is with any kind of sleep teaching, as if you follow the last episode, sleep teaching, not sleep training, because it is a skill that we're teaching. We know that we're trying to change habits and changing habits when your child is tired, which you're going to do at bedtime, is going to be really frustrating for them. And they're going to express that with some tears. So Mm -hmm. there's very few people that really effectively work on sleep without some tears. So for some people, cry it out means to close the door, not go back in. And then for other people, cry it out means any kind of tears at all. And so we're talking about different things. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's so much passion around this topic is people are talking about different things, right? We're not talking about like sleep training a four-week-old baby. That's very different than a nine-month-old baby. So that's why cry it out makes me crazy is people are talking about different things with different definitions. 100%. And I did use cry it out. We did use Ferber method. It actually, I want to really normalize that for some babies, it really does work, but that goes down to your understanding of your baby. I have to be very clear on that. Like, I'll be honest, when I left residency and started working at my first job, I just felt like all babies could do cry it out and Ferber method. If you want to use terminology. And I also don't love cry it out because it sounds as if the crying is just giving up when it's not okay. Like it's really not your child is not giving up and it's not just going to be depleted and not love you. That's not what cried out is, but it's a terminology that I also don't love. It's used very often, but it is something that they're going to cry and that you're going to check in, right? You're going to cry and you're going to check in at whatever intervals you've created. But when I left residency, I'm being very open here. I assume that, yeah, this is something that could work for all babies, similar to how I approached tantrums and all of that. And then I started to practice more. I'm now practicing for eight, nine years. And I was like, wait, there's obviously variations to temperament, right? Mm -hmm. For children. So there has to be variations to sleep. There has to be variations to how we approach discipline in some ways, right? Like behavior Mm -hmm. modifications. So I agree with you. I did use it. I respect that if someone does not like, it's not something that vibes with them, but it is also about understanding your baby may have a temperament. Like if your baby's crying for like 
hours and hours. Ah, probably not going to do a cry method. I don't want that, but it's about your baby and seeing, is this something we want to try? Or do we want to try a more, an approach that has less crying, if you will. I think let's go into another misconception. I think there's a misconception that there's a training that has absolutely zero tears. I mean, there's going to be some oh, yeah. descent. Let's talk about that. Yeah, because of course, because anytime you're teaching your child to do something new, they're not going to love it, but would love for you to elaborate more on the misconception mm-hmm. that all crying is yeah. bad and that it's something that is not something good for the child. Yeah. yeah. And when I say extinction and not going back in, I mean like not ever going back in. Right. Like that's different than the fervor with the checks. I should be clear yeah. on that. Okay. Three things are going to influence how much your kiddo cries. Okay. One is going to be your timing. So putting kids down too early or too late, they'll cry a little bit more because it's mm-hmm. frustrating for them. Too early, they're frustrated. They're not quite ready. Their sleep pressure has not risen enough yet. They're not ready. Too late, they're overtired. They're more needy. They want you that much more. Okay. Second thing is your ability to be consistent as you get through this. So, you know, in our first night of sleep teaching, yes, your child might cry 45 minutes. The next night, maybe it's less, but are we being consistent? Where I see a lot of people go wrong is when they are handling night wake-ups and sometimes they feed them and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they rock them. Sometimes they give them a pacifier. Mm-hmm. Those are very inconsistent responses. So that it's, it's hard for them to figure out what's happening. They can't learn. They can't make progress. You usually get stuck when you're responding in that manner. And then the third thing is what you mentioned, temperament. Some kids are much more strong-willed than others. Mm-hmm. And again, in this conversation, I am biased, right? Because the kids that I work with in my one-to-one or in my school are more strong-willed than other people. Have I had kids not cry? Yes, I have. And it's not because of anything that I did. It's because of their temperament and the timing. The parents finally figured out the timing. They were making it earlier or later. And they offered some physical and verbal reassurance and some padding. And that child accepted that and dozed off to sleep. Mm -hmm. Right. But not every child would do that. So most kids will cry. Yes, most kids will cry. And I think the common worry is that those tears are saying you're abandoning me. I can't do this. And again, this goes into your mindset, right? Because your mindset influences your actions, which influences your outcome. So in our book, we actually talk about how you have to change your mindset if you're going to do sleep teaching, because you change your mindset, you do new actions and you get a different outcome, right? All great points. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. And one thing that I think parents are afraid of, regardless of what sleep method they choose, is that sort of, you know, the tears that come with it, whether it's doing a cry method that is like the Ferber or even just more gradual methods. I don't like the terminology can make it sound like cry is such this awful thing, but mm-hmm. this is like the first time, like you just say a family chooses to do this in infancy, right? This mm-hmm. is the first time that you may see your child cry when you're not there if you're doing check-ins for example okay Mm -hmm. or you're patting their back and you know laying them down they may cry a little bit or just may feel like oh i'm an awful parent but as you go through parenting you're going to realize more and more that you're going to create these rules and boundaries with your child and they're not Mm -hmm. always going to love everything that you do i use the example of a toddler like we practice a little bit of a mix of gentle parenting and then my own style like hey we're just gonna we respect his feelings i like to call myself more of a mindful parent that he's entitled Mm -hmm. to his feelings i have mine we're getting through this moment together and this is just a moment it doesn't define us it's just a feeling and so when you start to kind of understand that there are going to be moments where even in toddler years and beyond, it almost like is reframing that infancy period that you are teaching your child about sleep attachments that, you know, maybe they've been doing this and rocking their child or passive art. How can we either slowly cold turkey, whatever method, it's just so important to know that you are raising a loved 
baby. Okay. A loved baby is a baby who sees their parents. A loved baby is someone who sees their mommy or caregiver, daddy, whoever it is in the morning with a smile on their face. Like this is all very important to understanding the big picture of how we approach sleep. And I love talking about that one. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess Meals, chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor Meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor Meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. Hey, are you loving the show? You're halfway through, so I hope that you are. This is a reminder that if you love the show, appreciate our guests, and want to continue to hear amazing conversations, to leave those reviews and ratings. Reviews and ratings are how a podcast continues to grow and reach more people. And the more people we reach, the bigger we can get and the more amazing free content we can provide for you. Yes, you may hear some ads like this one, but my goal is to be able to provide free and accessible health, development, and parenting content to you via the show. Leave a review and rating and update reviews after you hear a powerful episode. Thank you for tuning in. The other one that I know you also share with me is the terminology of sleeping through the night, I think is often misconstrued. So explain how you would define sleeping through the night. Yeah. In the helping baby sleep method, we talk about sleeping through the night as 11 to 12 hours with no feeds. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't happen. You know, when kids sleep through the night really does vary. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give generalizations here. So with my exclusively breastfed kiddos, it could be eight or nine months of age to sleep 11 hours without eating at all. I have for sure had four-month-olds do it and five-month-olds do it, but I would say on average, it's around eight to nine months. If you have formula, that's completely different. And if you're bottle feeding, that's often different because you have so much more knowledge about how much they're consuming during the daytime, which can help you shift those calories more easily into the daytime, right? Yes. 
Mm -hmm. But what I hear a lot of is sleeping through the night. I remember I had a friend at one point and she was like, oh yeah, my baby's seven week old sleeping through the night. I was like, get out. What are you doing? Tell me everything. And they put the baby down at 1130 at night and he wakes up at six o'clock. So to them, that's sleeping through the night because that's when they go to sleep. And again, this speaks mm. to what a parent's threshold is, right? Those parents only need six and a half hours of sleep. That was not me. I am need a lot of sleep. I'm like a nine hour girl. I love yeah. sleep. You know, one person's dream sleeper is someone else's nightmare. And then there's also different resources that we'll talk about, like the newborn stage. And, and even that's different, right? Because technically, medically, I think a newborn is like zero to 28 days. But in a lot of the research, and even in my book, I talk about newborn as zero to three. So again, definitions are what are making us all confused and having conflict with each other because we're talking about different things. Yeah, I love this. This is so important because the misconception that I see is that when we say sleeping through the night also, like you said it perfectly. And I didn't know this before we started this recording that you would have the same definition, but yeah, sleeping through the night as an official terminology for me is also 10 to 12 hours without any feeding or intervention that is sleeping through the night. Many yes. people will say sleeping through the night is my child wakes up and is fed and go back down. That is not essentially the terminology of sleeping through the night, right? So I agree Correct. with you completely. And I think we also normalize, and I know you know this because you study sleep is that people say we all technically don't quote unquote sleep through the night, but Yes, every single human being will wake up in the middle of the mm -hmm. night, toss and turn, and then go back down as an adult. Hopefully as an adult, you go back down on your own. You're not checking your phone. You're not going to get a glass of water. You've learned that you toss and turn and you go back. Babies also toss and turn in between sleep cycles and will go down on their own once they learn the concepts of independent sleep, right? So you're teaching that. Exactly. We talked about that on the other episodes that if there's a sleep attachment and that's okay, they're breastfed, they're formula fed, or they have a pacifier, or they're just used to being rocked. Those become normal sleep associations that every baby has, but then it's like bathing them out for them to understand, oh, yeah, I woke up, but I got this. I'll go back down on my own. And then they'll get to that point that they're quote unquote sleeping through the night. I completely agree with that terminology. I think also you may agree that that terminology is thrown around even from sleep accounts. Like I'll see sleep accounts saying, yeah, your baby's sleeping through the night if they wake up. And I'm like, well, no, that is great that they're doing that. I'm not saying that that's bad, but the technical term of sleeping mm -hmm. through the night is no intervention, nothing. The baby mm -hmm. goes to bed and you don't see them till morning, you know, mm -hmm. because they didn't need anything. And I also, from a medical standpoint, completely agree with all this stuff that you said about the way a person is feeding. Like, yes, I do see breastfed babies who can be trained earlier, like four months. I have had some that did three months, like you said before, but yeah, I see it usually later, completely reasonable. If food gets introduced, their calorie intake changes. And I do see that formula fed babies tend to be able to be sleep trained earlier, maybe the parent's choice. Mm -hmm. And that also could be because of the calorie. That also could just be because the parent's philosophy. Confidence. Right? Yeah, confidence. Like you understand that your baby's fine. You understand that there's attachment without being at your breast when you formula feed. So I formula fed my son. And so I knew that he loved me. I know that he's fed because of nutrition, that I can still give him love and attachment in other ways, even though I'm not breastfeeding him, right? So because of that, I did feel more comfortable sleep training him earlier. Had mm -hmm. I started breastfeeding him, who knows? Like I wouldn't have known because I can't go back in time, but maybe yeah. one day I'll have a second child and then I'll be able to see if I breastfeed that baby, what is my feelings going to be around it? But all right. this terminology is so important. Oh gosh, I just think it's so misconstrued out there. 
Yeah, we're talking about different things, really, a lot. You made an interesting point that I'd like to speak to, the difference between breastfeeding and formula-fed parents. And part of that in the middle of the night is the confidence to look back and say, well, I know you had 25 ounces today. You're good. I'm going to wait a little bit longer, right? Or also, if you're going to get a bottle, you have to get up and go make it. There's like a delayed reaction, whereas the breastfeeding, we just whip out the boob and it's instantaneous like that, right? And this was my story, too. I feel like Often when we're breastfeeding, we just want to be there. We, we want that attachment. And inadvertently, what we do is we use the boob to soothe, mm-hmm. not just for sleep, for hunger. Sometimes it's even boredom, yes. being fussy. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? If that works for you, amazing. But one of the most common pitfalls I see people making is with breastfeeding is that they use it to mask fatigue. Mm-hmm. And they end up in what I call the snacking cycle. They have like frequent feeds. They're feeding every couple of hours during the daytime. They never get full feeds. So they have to continue to feed in the nighttime. And then over time with that consistency, they end up reinforcing that the boob is a soother that I use when I'm bored, fussy, hungry, and they miss those tired signs. So I feel sometimes formula feeding parents or even bottle feeding parents. Yes are able to kind of develop more parenting tools to be detectives and figure out what the root issue is. Because they can say, well, I just fed you an hour and a half ago. I know you had five ounces. This isn't hunger. What else could be bugging you right now? Instead of, oh, they're fussy. Maybe it's hunger. And they feed them and they fall asleep or whatever. So food for thought there. Yeah, no pun intended, food for thought. You know, going back to what you said about your mindfulness approach, you can teach those same philosophies to breastfeeding parents. And I think you're 100% right, because if we're breastfeeding, I get it, you whip out the breast quickly. You are right that when you have to get up to get a formula bottle, you are also giving a pause to your child, right? Like I talk a lot about pausing. And I think every sleep person will talk about how it's so important to give a moment, especially Mm -hmm. if your child just ate, but also through the night to see, is this something that's going to be something that they'll just go back down or is this something that they actually need us? Um, But for example, your baby starts to cry. You're like, oh, it's been six hours. Let me check. But they're not rooting. Like they're not like putting their hand and then you go to start to make the bottle and then you come back and they fall asleep. It's been like three minutes and you're like, you just gave them the pause that we're talking about. So I also agree that I love teaching breastfeeding parents. Hey, you can pause, but it's hard because of the mindset. It's hard because of the cycle of you feel like, well, no, this is my nutrition and attachment, but I love to say that you can have an attached baby. Okay. You will hundred percent have an attached baby. If you give a pause and just take a moment and really assess their hunger cues, because I have seen parents coming in like seven, eight months who the baby's still snacking. And I'm like, wait, Uh your baby's on solids. Like, If this is working, like you said, great, but also looking at the developmental perspective, I want the baby to also now start to eat solids and learn about food and learn about that. So love that you like this, but let's talk about how we can incorporate it with like feeding and, you know, solid foods and also just your sleep habits and getting your sleep back. Again, we'll always go back to how much I think sleep benefits the entire family on a mental health perspective and developmental perspective for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Intentional feeding, right? It's the third pillar yes. of the helping baby sleep method in the newborn stage and for babies and toddlers as well. Because you got to rule out that variable in the middle of the night if you want to work on independent sleep habits. You have to be able to say, and that's the thing about breastfeeding parents is they sometimes lack that confidence to be able to say, oh, uh, I'm not sure that this is not hunger. And that's what we teach in our method is that as a breastfeeding parent, you have regular feeding windows during the day that allows you to stack the calories, have intervals between the feeds so they come to the breast ready to eat drain one side completely, take half the other side. And you're like, wow, that was a great feed. Okay. Now it's 9 PM and they woke up. You're like, well, no, 
I can look back on the day and I can see that they ate four times and those were all full feeds. Mm-hmm. I'm going to wait this one out, La Paz. And Pamela Druckerman wrote the book, Bringing Up Bebe. I don't know if you've yeah. read that. Yep. That's where I first learned about La Paz. And that's a great book, another perspective on parenting that I really enjoyed. So I didn't read the book, but my former mentor at my first job, I worked at this practice called Tribeca Pediatrics in New York City, and they are very pro-sleep training. Yes, The owner, Dr. Right. Michelle Cohen, he's actually one of my mentors. Like, I really learned so much from him. And then also, as I grew as a physician, I agree with some things. I don't agree with some things. It's just what it mm-hmm. is, right? And that's, I, mm-hmm. he's French, and he taught me so much about this whole La Paz and all of this. So he, it's very common in a lot of French parenting, and bringing a bebe is obviously a French parenting philosophy. So I did learn from him. I learned a lot of the mm-hmm. concepts, and then I grew with it as um Obviously, I became more seasoned as a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. The last thing I wanted to ask was, you know, two main reasons you think that babies and toddlers struggle with sleep. I guess this may not be a misconception, but what are some things that you see if you could kind of say that these are the reasons why there may be struggles? Yeah. Okay. This is very generalization again, right? But in Uh general, one, especially after four months and older, this crowd we're talking to would be one, they're relying on something external to help them relax and drift off into sleep, even if they're not asleep from it. So I'll have a lot of breastfeeding parents are like, no, no, we feed as part of our bedroom time routine, but they're not asleep. But if you made them drowsy, that's why in my book, it says why drowsy, but awake is setting us all up to fail. Mm -hmm. Because when you understand sleep's a learned skill, that's the skill they actually need to learn to be independent sleepers long term. Okay, so the reliance on something external to help them initiate sleep and then return to sleep in the night. And that could be a pacifier, a bottle, nursing, being held, co-sleeping, touch, any of those things. That's number one. The second reason for most of the kids that I work with that I see in the class and in one to ones is that they're just stuck in these awful overtired cycles. Sleep really does beget sleep. The more well-rested your kiddo is, the easier it is to get them to fall asleep and then stay asleep. And the opposite is true. When you're stuck waking up every two, three hours a night, you just stay stuck waking up every two, three hours a night. It's like they're overtired. It's harder to fall asleep and then stay asleep. And then the third thing I would add, though, for the newborns, like less than three months, kids who are struggling with sleep, they are uncomfortable. They are Mm -hmm. uncomfortable because they either have a food sensitivity or they have a little bit of reflux, often silent reflux, or they're not being burped properly, which there is no evidence for whatsoever. But I can tell you from years of experience working with newborns is that kids who will, quote, only sleep in my arms, there's something else usually happening. Mm-hmm. There's something else going on there. They don't want to be on their backs because of probably blocks. But generally for the average population, it's overtired and reliant on something external. That is so great. And again, about all that reflux commentary, because that is a joy killer. Like I call it, it robs a lot of parents joy because yes. one, not only seeing your child upset, fussy, and then that impacts their sleep. I have many resources on my website, everyone who's listening about reflux GERD and also how it impacts sleep in my course, actually. But this is so important to remember that there are medical reasons why a child may not sleep. And so if you're struggling with sleep, especially in that I would say in the first four months, obviously we want to see the weight gain, but if there is reflux, if there is anything else that you're concerned about, important to bring it up to your clinician to rule out anything medical that can be done. And then also, if not, obviously getting resources for sleep foundations in that six to eight week. I love that idea. You've mentioned that on the other episode as well, but also just creating a foundation of sleep that can help in the future as well. Whether you decide to do sleep teaching or sleep training can really help. So I love this. This is such a great conversation, Sarah. And is there anything else you want to add as like a take-home point for everyone listening today? You can be loving, attached, and well-rested. That is possible for you. 
I love it. And it's so true. And I'm just so grateful that I could have you on for a second time because I share so much of that philosophy of how you approach sleep. But besides that, because of course, you know, me and you don't agree on this cry it out, which I respect. And I love that we don't have to always agree on everything, but I love your foundational philosophy on parenting. Like I said before, the mindfulness approach is so vital for all of our children and our parents so that they can really get into this parenting role with confidence. And you seem to be doing that. So tell my followers, my listeners, where can they find you if they want to learn more about your services and your information and education? Yeah, our website's helpingbabiessleep.com and it's the same handle on Instagram. And we have a ton of freebies and downloadables. The book, The Helping Baby Sleep Method, The Art and Science of Teaching Your Baby to Sleep is on Amazon and on Audible actually too. Wonderful. And again, everyone who's joining us today, thank you so much for being here. If you love this conversation, make sure to leave a review, call out Dr. Sarah and her information as being amazing, and also share it on social media, especially Instagram, and tag us both. Share what you learned, why you love this episode, and why you want to spread this message far and wide. And thank you again for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review share this episode with a friend, share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, PedsDocTalkTV. We'll talk to you soon. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.